Book of Genesis. Now, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we've said that the book of Genesis is foundational for us to understand the rest of the Bible, foundational for us to understand life, because Genesis answers the big picture questions of life, the big questions of life, like, is there a God? What is God like? Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? I mean, the big questions out there that everyone in humanity really wants to know so they can connect uh, with, uh, with God and so, or with their concept of God. And so we need, to, we need to look at what the answers to these questions are so people can connect with the one true God and, and find God's solution to what went wrong. So we've answered these questions thus far in Genesis chapter 1. Is there a God? The biblical answer is yes. What is God like? We talked about God being triune, one God in nature and essence existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. We talked about God's power in creating everything out of nothing. And, and we just painted a, a picture from Genesis 1 a, a, as to what God is like. We talked about creation last, last week. Where do we come from? We talked about uh, the different views competing for explanation of origins we talked about naturalism and theistic evolution and last week i made a case based upon the bible that god created everything in six 24-hour periods on the seventh 24-hour period he rested so if you want to hear some more about that check it out next or check it out on the web on the internet Uh, but tonight i want to answer these two questions who are we as humans who are we and why are we here who are we and why are we here? Now, next week we'll talk about what went wrong. You want to be here for that, Genesis chapter 3. But we need to understand who we are and why we are here. And the Bible has much to say about this. Now, just kind of a quick reminder. Remember on day 1, uh, Genesis 1 tells us God created light. Day 2, God created the sky and separated it from the water. Day 3, God created the dry land with vegetation and separated it from the water. Day four, God created the light from the heavens. Day five, God created aquatic animals and birds, filled up the waters in the sky. Day six, God created animals and humans, filled up the land. Day seven, God rested from his work of creation. I want to focus in on what the Bible says in chapter one about what God created on day six. Look in Genesis chapter one with me. Genesis chapter one. Verse 26. Actually, back at verse 24. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, there's a shift here. He's making all the animals, but he's about to do something that's different from all the animals he's previously made. That's what it says. Then God said, let us, that's a a little uh, indication of the Trinity, let us, the three persons of the Godhead, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, a couple of things I want to say. First of all, when we answer the question, who are we? You need to understand, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. It's there in your notes. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the only 
created living being that is described as being created in the image of God. Did you you notice a lot of demarcation between all the other animals and man? God created the livestock, the creeping things, and then all of a sudden there's this line. He says, now let us create, create a being in our image, in the image of God. This speaks of man being the pinnacle of creation. Uh, look what it says uh, in verse 20, 28. And God blessed them. He blessed this, this, uh, th- these humans that he created. Now turn to Psalm 8. I want to show you how this is reinforced in the Psalms. Our special place in creation. Verse 1 is the Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so you hear what David's saying. David's saying, I look at the creation and I feel small. Have you ever been somewhere and you, and you just felt small? Maybe standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, talk to some folks who were there uh, last week, or standing out looking up into the sky and seeing the stars, or perhaps standing by the ocean. Can I get a witness? I love the beach. All right, just want to say that. I'm from Florida, you know that. If I could be wearing flip-flops right now, I would. But anyway, and, and, you, and, you, and you go to these places in creation, and you just feel, you just feel small because creation's so big. And David's experiencing that. God, I feel so small. Why are you mindful of me, a a, a man? And look what he says next. How do we know that God wants humans to be the pinnacle of his creation? Well, David says there in the next verse. One second, my Bible turned. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the path of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So you see the, the difference there. Humans have been given a position of dominion over every other created animal, living thing. And so David here recognizes that man is the is the pinnacle of creation. I shared with you last week that you have people that, that uh, will protest about the habitat of a spotted owl and, and the animal going extinct. And I certainly don't want any animals going extinct. And I certainly want to take care of the created order. I think Christians should lead the way in that and be concerned about, about nature and creation. But you have someone that's, that's concerned about the, 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 the vanishing habitat of the spotted owl, and yet they're, they're pro-choice. And aren't concerned about the rights of a baby in a mom's womb. And that just doesn't add up because, because humans have, have intrinsic value and worth that a spotted owl does not have. Why? The Bible says we've been created in the image of God. There's something special about human life uh, that we see in God's words. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Secondly... We are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. Back in Genesis 1, 26-27, it says, Let us make man in our image. 
Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What, what does that phrase mean? Well, uh, let me give you three, three things that being made in the image of God means. First of all, it means that we have personality. Just like God, had, God is, is, is three persons, one God, three persons. That they are three separate, co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they have personality. They, they have emotions. The, the triune God, our, all three persons of the Godhead have emotions. They, they interact with one another. They interact with, with humanity. They, they, they have personality. That's what I mean by that. And we are created in God's image in that we have personality too. We, we possess something that animals don't possess. We possess the ability to reason. Animals work on instinct. No matter how cute they look or whatever, it's all instinct. It's all trained responses to get what they want. Reason. We have conscience. Animals don't have conscience. We have conscience, that, that built-in conscience. Now, our conscience has been marred in the fall but we all, as humans, have this trace of conscience. We all have a, a sense of justice, a, a sense of fairness. We know that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And even people that are more relativists, they don't, they don't believe there's something that's absolutely right or absolutely wrong. If you steal their car from them, they'll say, no fair. Because they understand that, that, that there is right, there is wrong. We have that conscience, that ability to, to process right and wrong that animals don't have. Because we have personality, we have capacity for relationships. For relationships. We can interact with others. And there be give and take in the relationship. We have personality. That's one of the ways we are made in God's image. Another aspect of being made in God's image is we have creativity. Humanity has creativity. I had the privilege this past weekend of going to uh, Mount Rushmore. It's on my bucket list. I've always wanted to go there. I'm a history buff, and I got to go to Mount Rushmore, and it was awesome. And I, I went and sat in the movie, and I went to the museum and heard the explanations of how they use dynamite and these different tools to, to carve the four present faces into the, that, that rock face. And it's just extraordinary what man can do, how, how they came up with a way to do that. And, and it's, just, it's just incredible. Uh, just the creativity uh, of man. You know, when we went up to South Dakota, we, we flew on a plane. Just amazing. I mean, you're up one minute, and, and about an hour later, you're in Minneapolis. <laughs> it's just incredible how, how, how creative and inventive man is. And that ability to create, that ability to create, to invent, is because we're in the image of God. God is the ultimate creator, right? The ultimate inventor. He made everything out of nothing. And that ability to create, to deal with problems in creative ways, to invent things, to meet needs, that ability to create speaks of us being made in God's image. And it separates us from the animal kingdom. You know, I have a dog named Scout. I've never seen him doodling in the sand, drawing a picture. I've never seen him invent anything. He just does what dogs do. He lays in the yard and eats and runs off. And he's just a dog, right? He's not a, cre he's not a creator. He's not an inventor. He doesn't have that capacity because he's not made in God's image. We are made in God's image. If you go to the patent office where inventors turn in patents to protect their idea, you won't find the name Fido anywhere. 
because Fido doesn't invent things. Humans invent things, right? See the difference there? We've been made in the image of God, so we have this this ability in God's image to create, to invent, to, to deal with problems in different ways, creativity. Another way that we're made in God's image is spirituality. Spirituality. In other words, we have a spirit that allows us to relate to God. We have the capacity to relate to God because of the, our spiritual selves. We all have that. The Bible speaks of, of a, a trichotomy when it comes to man. Uh, body, soul, spirit. Some are dichotomous, but, but body, soul, spirit. And because we have a soul, because we have a spirit, we are able to relate to God. That separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And then immortality. Immortality. Once... Once a life is created, there is a soul that will live forever in one of two places. You thought about that? Every life that's ever been created is a soul that will live forever in one of two places. Everyone in this room has a soul. And even when your body dies and goes into the ground, your soul will keep on living, will go into eternity. And your soul will exist in one of two places, heaven or hell. Sobering thought, right? But, but that's what, what it means to be made in the image of God. We, we are immortal like God. We will live on forever like God. We will never come to an end once we are created. So, because we're made in God's image, personality, creativity, spirituality, immortality, it, this is in your notes, every person has intrinsic value and worth. Every person has intrinsic value and worth. Turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, I love this psalm. It speaks so clearly of the intrinsic value and worth of every human being. This is David. Look what he says in verse 12. He he begins the psalm by talking about God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. Verse 13 he says, Psalm 139 verse 13. David talking to God, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. So who knits life together in the womb of a, of a mother? God does. God's the one that, that knits that life together. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. This verse is very important. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now you know what he's saying there? He's saying when I was still an unformed substance, some people might say a fetus, not fully developed, not not out of his mother's womb yet, but, but when I was unformed, he said, God, you knew the days you had laid out for me. It's extraordinary, is it not? So if, listen to me, every baby in a mother's womb from the point of conception is a person. Personhood. Even though their substance may not be fully formed yet, God sees them as a person. He knit them together. He gave that life. And he has a plan for that life. 
And so Christians who know this, who know the Bible, believe the Bible, should be, should be advocates for the value of life in the mother's womb. And we should value life until natural death. This idea that sweeping Europe and trying to infiltrate America of, of euthanasia, some just scary stuff going on there. Life is value, valuable. It's, it has value and worth from conception until natural death. Or, you know, a, a shortened death because of tragedy or accident. But it has value. It has worth. Why? Because every life is, a, is one who has been created in the very image of God. That's important, right? We should, we should lead the way in standing up for life. Now, I, w- I want to be careful. Now, I always like to say this when I, when I have an opportunity and have some time. and I don't have much time, but I'll say it. Um, there may be some in this room that um, have something in your past you're not very proud of. Perhaps, you know, you found yourself or maybe uh, a person... Uh, if you're a male, a person that you were married to or, or, or in relationship with and, and there was an unexpected pregnancy or whatnot and, and times were not good and maybe you got some poor advice and maybe you were desperate or whatever or you, you were a different place in your life spiritually and you didn't think that it, didn't, didn't know what you know now and, and you kind of walk through all that and you say, wait, I mean, that happened to me. Maybe abortion. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody in this room or... or Many somebodies, and you said that there's an abortion in my past, and and it just it just fills my heart with with grief and, and guilt, and and I, I just can't get past it. You'd be surprised people just can't get past it. But here's what I want you to understand: uh, every life is valuable. We ought to we ought to we ought to fight for life in a in a mom's womb and stand up for life in a mom's womb. But if that's in your past, I want you to know that God's grace is greater. And if you turn from your sin and repent and say, God, I blew it. I'm making no excuses. It was wrong. And I turn to you and I want you to, to, to cleanse my heart and, and lift the guilt. And you turn to God in repentance. He's like the prodigal son story where the father has his arms open wide. And he will receive you and he will restore you and he will renew you. And he will lift that guilt off of you. And you can live in the freedom that only God's grace through Jesus Christ can give. So when you hear me preaching about pro-life and standing up for life, if, if you've got something in your past you're not very proud of, and that could go on in another number of issues, right? And, and you got something in your past, you say, I, I, I can't get past my past. Listen, God's grace is greater. It's greater. So I want you to understand that, that, that forgiveness and cleansing and all that's available. But, but now, now that we're here, no matter what's in your past, now we can say, because we know God's word, God's done a work in my life, we can say that we ought to stand for life, Right? We ought to stand for life, and we want to be on the forefront of that as believers in, in Jesus Christ. And I, 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 I don't want to get political, because um, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of mad at the political process right now, but I don't want to get off into it. But I, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I'm a, I'm a one-issue voter. I, the, the pro-life issue is the key issue I vote on. And you say, well, you shouldn't be a one-issue voter. I, I, I could convince you that everyone's a one-issue voter. It just depends on what the issue is. For example, if someone tortured toddlers, would you vote for them for an office? You say, oh, no, 
you're a one-issue voter. Right? You're a one-issue voter. And I just believe that this is such a key issue in our culture, and it's such a, a, a battleground in our culture, and the Bible is so clear on this in, our, in, 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 in His Word that, that it's an issue we must, we must make a priority. We must make a priority. I, I just, one day we're going to stand before God, and, and I don't want to stand before God and say, I didn't say anything about the horrors of 60 million babies being killed in their mother's womb since Roe v. Wade. I don't want to be, I don't want to be one that's never said anything or, or, or tried to change it or, or tried to vote at least to get, you know, someone in office that, that, that's, that's pro-life. And so that's all I'm going to say on that. But, but we're creating God's image. Every person has intrinsic value and worth. Now here's the second question, the big picture question that Genesis answers. Why are we here? Okay, we're created in God's image. Why? Why did God create us in his image? What's God have for us? Why are we here? And people are desperate to find the answer to that, right? They're desperate. They want to know why they're here. I mean, they want to know what life is all about. Is, is there any meaning? Is there any purpose? Is there, is there any point to it all? Well, Genesis tells us why we are here. Number one, God's purpose for humanity is that we form families. Form families. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. So he says, as he creates humans, first thing, okay, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. He's speaking here of the formation of the family. Now, the foundation of the family, the, 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 the cornerstone of the family, if you will, is marriage between a man and a woman till death parts them. Now turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Here's what happens in Genesis chapter 2. Moses, who's writing this, goes back to give us a little bit more explanation about what happened on day 6. So we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that on day 6 God created humanity, right? But now in chapter 2 he's going to tell us a little bit more about that story, about what happened on day 6. And look what it says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now that's extraordinary. Let me tell you why. If you read through the first part of Genesis, the Bible keeps saying God saw it and it was good. He saw it. It was good. He saw it. It was good. The first time that God pronounces something not good is when he sees Adam by himself. That's extraordinary. God says, that's not good. I got a plan for that. So what does God do? Not good. He should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave to all his livestock, to the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a hel- found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, some ancient anesthesia, all right? And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib 
the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Now he says, is there any significance about God using a rib to make the woman, Adam's rib to make the woman? And there are jokes about that and different things. But I thought this was a beautiful statement from an old Puritan preacher named Matthew Henry. He said that Eve was not made out of Adam's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that beautiful? That's good. That's beautiful. And so he takes the rib, and he, and he makes Eve from Adam's rib. And you say, well, do you really believe that? Here's my answer. Absolutely. No question. That's exactly what happened, because the Bible said it. Put Adam into a deep sleep, and got the rib, and created Eve. And then what happens? The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. One preacher said that Adam said, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave, here it is, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we have here is we have the foundations of marriage. God creates Uh, E for Adam, and he officiates the first marriage ceremony. He brings them together and says, this is a pattern for what I want to happen in creation. That a man finds a woman, he leaves his parents, and he cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. The foundation of the family is marriage between a man and a woman till death parts them. Notice God's not giving us a lot of options for what marriage looks like. It's a man and a woman. Jesus says, when God puts a man and woman together, no one should try to tear them asunder. It's till death parts them. That's God's plan for marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, just kind of a quick social commentary. Uh, and I tell you this not, not to let you know that Claire and I do this, but just to give you some, some context as to why we were so uh, engaged in what happened this week. But Claire and I for years have sponsored a child through World Vision. And, and earlier this week, World Vision, a Christian... Um, relief humanitarian agency announced that they would be uh, hiring on their staff uh, people that were, and here's how they said it, Christians that were in legally recognized same-sex marriages. So they're saying is we are going to bring on to our staff people who are living in open, unrepentant homosexual relationships as long as it's legally recognized by a state. And they said, you know, these are Christians that are living open, ho- openly homosexual lifestyles, which is a contradiction of, of Scripture. You can't live in open, re- open rebellion against God with no repentance in your life and be considered a follower of Christ. There's just no, no reason you should consider yourself a follower of Christ if you're living in open rebellion against God. And so they made this statement, and it grieved my heart because we've been involved with them. That, that's why I told you that. We've been involved with them. And so we've been wringing our hand. What are we going to do? And I, I was trying to figure out the child's in Mozambique and trying to figure out exactly where he is. So maybe I could route some to, to, through somebody else to get some funds to him. You know, trying to figure out how we could continue to, to do some good. But, but I, you know, I have a, a fundamental issue with World Vision coming to that conclusion. And, and, they're, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to capitulate to all denominations. So if there's some, some denominations out there that believe that, that, that same-sex marriage is permissible, uh, then they, they'll take their money and want them to be on board. But what happened is there was an outcry from conservative evangelical Christians. I mean, people were really upset. People were writing blog articles and 
news articles and you know just no, normal ordinary people like me thinking about okay how are we going to take the money from here and re- reroute it over here and it's like a bomb dropped and so I'm, I'm the reason I tell the story is because today World Vision released a letter and they reversed their decision. Isn't that good? And so yeah, that's good. So that's praise the Lord and they repented and were humble and so I say accept them at their word. They they saw it was wrong and they made a turn and and that's that's good. But that's those are the kind of conversations that are happening in our culture today. And, and here's what's going to happen. You ready for this? We're about to find out in America who the real Christians are. And the reason I say that is because it's about to get very uncomfortable to say the things I've just said. It is. That marriage, biblical marriage, is one flesh union between a man and a woman till death should they part. That's God's a design God's intention for marriage. And it's going to get very unpopular, increasingly unpopular to say that in coming days. And so we gotta we gotta decide. Am I gonna am I gonna give in? Am I gonna am I gonna capitulate to the the pressure of of the culture or am I gonna say this is what God's word says? I can't go anywhere else other than what God's word says. And and we're about to be tested folks. It's coming. It's coming. And so uh, we just need to remember what God says about marriage. Let me just read you this. This comes from um, Ray Orland. It's just a really beautiful piece about the pressure that Christians are going to be under on this issue. Let me just read it to you very quickly. He writes, marriage is not a product of human social evolution. Marriage came down from God. Can I get an amen on that? You see it here. He performed the first wedding ceremony. And he defined it for us. He has the right to it. It belongs to him. One mortal life fully shared between a man and a woman. This is marriage according to the Bible. Because Genesis 2.24 is not a throwaway line. Its very purpose is to define. What's more, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 to take our understanding a step further. An amazing step. We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's Ephesians 5.30 and 31. Did you notice, he says, his logic. We are members of Christ's body. He loved us. He chose us. He gave himself up for us. He embraced us. He is with us. He will present us someday in splendor. All of this glory is ours because we are united with him now and forever. Therefore, this is why our union with Christ is the reason why a man and, and, and woman get married and live united as one flesh. She, listen to this. Human marriages are miniature social platforms on which the gospel is to be displayed. Marriage is a gospel issue. That is the ultimate reason why clarity about its definition matters. People who def- depart from or fail to stand up for the biblical view of marriage are taking a step away from the gospel itself. The whole Bible is the story of the marital love of God as, as our whole lives are that story if we have eyes to see. Listen, marriage is more than human romance, wonderful as that is. Marriage is the display of Christ and his bride in love together. A beautiful, tender, thriving Ephesians 5 kind of marriage makes the gospel visible on earth, bringing hope to people who have given up believing there could be any love anywhere for them. That is why biblical marriage deserves our courageous loyalty today. And that is why, in our increasingly secular times, biblical marriage is under pressure. Its true meaning is understood and embodied and sustained only by the power of the gospel. Listen to this last paragraph. We can't turn the clock back to the days of the Christian social consensus the West has foolishly thrown away. But we who say we believe the gospel can and must stand up for the biblical definition of marriage. 
We must cultivate beautiful marriages ourselves. We must suffer social rejection bravely. We must pray for revival. We must wait for the inevitable collapse of every false view of marriage. We must lovingly serve all who suffer for their foolish attempts at false marriages. Listen to this. And we must go to church this Sunday and worship the living God and with all our hearts so that we ourselves are sustained for faithfulness over the long haul because this isn't going to be easy. Standing for truth in the coming days is not going to be easy. We need each other. We need the, we need the encouragement, the accountability, the strength that comes when we gather together and prepare ourselves to stand up for truth. Now just a quick word because I talked about this in relation to abortion. Is homosexuality the unforgivable sin? The answer is absolutely not. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul, writing to Church Corinth, says, Such were some of you. In other words, you used to, some of you used to be homosexuals, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified by Jesus. And so if anyone from any kind of background, and by the way, homosexuality is not the only sexual sin, right? Sex before marriage is a sexual sin. Adultery is a sexual sin. Pornography is a sexual sin. And if anyone turns to Christ, they can be forgiven of their sin. Isn't that good? Well, God's grace is bigger than our sin if we'll accept His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we need to stand up for truth, biblical marriage. But we do need to say, if we talk to people that struggle, uh, they're in that lifestyle, we need to hold out for them the hope that they can be, be washed in the blood of Jesus. They can be forgiven of their sins if they will turn to Jesus Christ. But we've got to tell people the truth about what the Bible says about that lifestyle. That lifestyle is not God's intention for anyone. It's a lifestyle that destroys. It's a lifestyle that is sinful. It's a lifestyle that is antithetical to the biblical picture of sexuality. And so, it's a sin. Make no mistake about it. But a sin that can be radically forgiven by Christ. Amen? We need to remember that. Truth and grace. Truth and grace. But we're not, listen, we're not doing people any favors by giving in on the issue. People need to hear the truth and see their need for a Savior. So we, need to, we just need to say that. I, the church I grew up in, we had a, we had a 5 o'clock training union hour. Anybody have training union in your church growing up? 5 o'clock? Before the 6 o'clock worship service, we had training union. And we had one guy that taught the class for years. And he just taught kind of whatever he wanted to. And so it didn't matter if we were talking about Revelation. It didn't matter if we were talking about, you know, uh, the Lord's Supper. We're talking about the Gospels, Paul's letters. Somehow we always got around to homosexuality. Like that's the only sin that people commit. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of sins that were going on in that room I know that we weren't talking about. <laughs> So we got to be careful that while we say that homosexuality is a sin and can be forgiven, that we also say there are some other things out there that are sins too, right? That we like to sweep under the rug, right? So, goodness, I'm getting, touching all the hot spots on that. All right. God's touching it all. It's in Genesis. Here's another thing about marriage. Marriage was put into place before any other institution, before the church, before the government, marriage, which means that marriage is not just the building block of a family, marriage is the building block of society. So if, the, if, if God's intention, God's plan for marriage erodes in society and biblical marriage goes the way of the dinosaur, society will inevitably collapse. 
That's what's at stake. Here's another thing. Marriage is God's idea, so it's a good idea. If you notice there in chapter 2, notice who takes the initiation. It's God that says it's not good for man to be alone. It's God that puts Adam to sleep. It's God that takes the rib. It's God that creates Eve. It's God that brings Eve to Adam, right? You see God initiating all of this? This is God's idea. God's the one that came up with marriage. So if it's God's idea, it must be good, right? Listen, marriage, and I'm biased, all right? Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. Wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, you know, we laugh and, and talk, but, but marriage really is a, a great gift from God. It's a good idea. When you have two people that love Jesus, not perfect folks, no perfect folks, but two people that love Jesus and, and love each other and want to honor Christ in their home, marriage is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. Third, gender differences are part of God's design. Who came up with the idea of man and woman? Who? God. Who knits together life in the mother's womb? So who determines gender? God. Gender is God's idea. And gender differences should be celebrated. Now, here's why I say this. And again, another hot topic issue. In our culture, there is a, there is a de-emphasizing of gender differences. Matter of fact, I've seen recently several instances of this where, where parents are, are hiding their child's gender from everyone else. So they won't be put in any, in any kind of pressure to conform to certain gender expectations. They can just become whatever they want to become. And so they dress them in kind of, you know, clothes that won't really reveal whether the, the child's a boy or a girl. And they are, unwittingly or not, they are, they are really setting their child up for failure. Because gender is something God creates, and it ought to be celebrated. I'm telling you, there's just a difference. I mean, you know, we had you know two boys, Cameron and Caleb, and if if we didn't give them a, a, a toy gun to play with, and this may not be politically correct, we didn't if we didn't give them a toy gun to play with, they would get a piece of bread and, and bite it into a gun shape and hold it up, right? And 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 and, and I mean, it's it's rough and tumble. It's just it is boys. It's just boys. I made a mistake recently. I let him watch Rocky, the Rocky movies. And I let him watch Karate Kid. Close together. And it just got real violent, so I had to pull back the reins. And, and you know, it, it's just boys, right? Abby Faith, is, it's tutus and, and, and we're not even, I mean, tutus and princess outfits and high heel stuff. And, and, and she, she, you know, gets lipstick and lip gloss and it's just crazy, right? It's just and 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 you have to work hard at that. That's just that's just the the that's just the the differences in gender. God did that. It's good. I'll be celebrated, right? Because in our differences we complement each other. And God takes us from differences and makes us into one and it's a beautiful thing. Again, this is all God's idea. So we ought to celebrate we ought to celebrate gender and and I'm I'm a little I'm just a little old fashioned on that. I I believe in teaching boys to be boys and teaching girls to be girls. I, 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 just, I, just, I just believe in that. I, I, I had some friends growing up in, 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 in school that they, they weren't taught that, and they had, they had real problems down the line. They really did. They were confused about, their, about what made them what they were, their gender, and, and, and it just got them in all sorts of issues. So God created gender differences. Next, a marriage will be healthy 
when both people make their spouse their primary human relationship. Look what it says in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is important. I'm about to start meddling here. You ready? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, when a man gets married, his primary human relationship shifts from his parents to his wife. Wife comes first, and it's the same with the wife. She leaves her primary human relationship as her parents being primary in her life, and her husband becomes her primary human relationship. Here's why I say that. I have an article that I printed off, and I use it for, for premarital counseling. It's called 12 Marriage Killers by James Dobson. And one of those, I think it's in the top three, one of the marriage killers is in-laws. And that just comes from this idea, okay, we're married, but I didn't really leave. I didn't really leave. And so healthy marriages are when two people shift their primary focus, not leave the relationship behind, they're still very close to their family, their parents, but th that's not their primary relationship anymore. The first relationship now is with my spouse. That's really, really important because it can get you in a lot of trouble. And you know That's why all these jokes about in-laws, right? Mother-in-laws, because it's, it's an issue, it, it's a problem. And so we need to, we need to and even if, even, listen, even if the family doesn't like it, it's, it's God's way, right? And you love them and you work with them and patient with them, but it's God's way that your spouse becomes your primary human relationship. Here's something that, that's just really helpful. Um, I just think it's a good thing to do. If, uh, if you're making plans for Christmas or Thanksgiving or holidays or spring break or summer or whatever, and, you know, you have your parents... Uh, you know, family trying to help you make your plans and, and something just very practical to say, let me talk to my spouse. I'll get back to you. That, that little thing right there speaks volumes to your family. Hey, good idea. We'll check it out. But before I get back to you and say yes or no, I'm going to talk to my spouse first because they're my primary human relationship. That's, that, well, that's silly, but it's really simple, but it's, it's effective. Okay. That's what Genesis 2.24 says. Leave father and mother. All right? The incredible reality of marriage is that God makes two people one. It says there in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Look what it says. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. That word hold fast or cleave is, is, is the idea of glue. We're going to stick together with your spouse. And that's what God does, and that's why marriage is so amazing. He takes two people that are different, different genders, different backgrounds, different personalities, different, 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 and he brings them together and he makes them one, and it's beautiful. One life, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one rejoicing, one budget, <laughs> one purpose. The, the, the intimacy in marriage, the, the physical intimacy is a picture of of, of God taking two and making them one. It's the, the consummation of that. And so the incredible reality of marriage is that God makes two people one. Marriage is good. It is good. And God's plan is that married couples multiply by having children. Chapter 1 verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And so children... Are a blessing, not a burden. Turn to Psalm 127 with me very quickly. Psalm 127. I'm going to speed up here. We've got to go fast. But 
Psalm 127. Twenty-seven, verse three. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord; the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like heirs in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so, the Bible clearly says that children are a blessing, not a burden. It's interesting, you know. Uh, you may or may not know, but Claire and I have a ten-year-old, a seven-year-old, a three-year-old, and we have one on the way, due in August. And and it's interesting. People's response, you know, not around here, but just family and, you know, people's response, you tell me you're having a fourth child. Now, years ago, it was nothing to have four children. It, you know, we had many families. Of, my, my grandparents both came from families of uh, seven siblings. And so it was, it was you know, very, very common to see big families back then. Um, but that's getting less and less common. And, and there's really a, a, a growing, I think, concerning social pressure for families to have, for, for, for families to say, well, you know, children, have another child, is, man, it's going to be tough. It's a burden. It's a, children are a blessing. That's what the Bible says. I'm not making that. Children are a blessing. And I know you got college and cars when they turn a certain age, and, and I understand all that, but God provides, doesn't he? God provides. And so here, here's what I'm saying. And that's a decision every family has to make. If you, want, if you have one child, wonderful. If you have two children, wonderful. If you have three children, wonderful. Five children, Wonderful. Whatever families decide related to children, we ought to celebrate because children are a blessing. And and you, see, you, know, you know, when I tell people I'm having a fourth child, I almost have to say, yes, I know what causes it. Right? You know what causes that? Yes, yes. Children are a blessing. Amen. Not a burden. Now, let me say another kind of another quick word here. Um, I have a close family member, I won't say who it is, but a close family member that he and his wife struggled for five plus years with infertility. So I know firsthand from walking with them through that how, how difficult and painful infertility is. So I want to be sensitive to that. Sometimes it's God's plan, and we don't know why this side of heaven. You know, the old hymn says we'll understand it by and by. But sometimes it's God's plan to um, withhold children for a season or maybe even for a lifetime. And I can't explain to you why that is, and and I can't you know figure that out for you, um, but I know it's difficult. I, I saw my family go through it, and I know it's hard. I know it's gut wrenching. I know that 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 Mother's Day at church is really really tough, and parent child dedications is it's just it kind of rips your heart out to see that. And I understand that. I'm, I'm again I've seen it firsthand through the eyes of of my family members. Um, but that's where you just have to trust God and say, God, you are good. My life is in your hands. I believe you're sovereign in control, and I just trust you. If you give us a child, we will say, what a blessing. Praise the Lord. Thank you. If you choose to not give us a child, we'll, we'll, it'll be tough, and you're going to have to help us, God. You're going to have to walk us through this because it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to tear my heart out because I want children, and, and God, you need to help me. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a matter of trust in a sovereign God who is your Father who loves you. Amen? And so just keep that, in, I know as I'm having this conversation about children being a blessing, and maybe in here, someone listening on the internet saying, well, what about me? I, I, we weren't able to have children. Well, God, God knows that, and God has a plan and a purpose, and you just have to trust Him. You have to trust Him, but I know He's good. He always does the right thing. Here's a, here's a uh, and by the way, God uses that in many people's lives. It's not, it's not the option for everybody, but to, to move them towards adoption and, and orphan care and things like that, and I've seen that. Uh, turn out in very powerful, positive ways. And so, 
Um, you just have to trust and see what God's doing in your life. So, why did God create us? Well, he created us to form families. Husband, wife, children, he created us to form families, to, to be fruitful and multiply. Which is another quick issue back on the same-sex marriage issue. Same-sex marriages cannot multiply. That's just biology. Right? And, and, and if, if everyone went that direction, then we'd stop having children. It's just not, it's not feasible. It's not feasible. And again, we don't have to be experts to understand that. It's just not feasible, right? Here's another reason we've been created. To work. To work. Look in chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They have dominion. He will, he will tend to the created order. Look in chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he had a plan that the Garden of Eden was wonderful, but Adam wasn't just going to be sitting around you know, eating grapes all day. He was going to be tending the garden, working in the garden. God had a plan for that. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of... Every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, more about that next week. But notice here, man is, man is working. Um, God has established and endorsed work is good. Again, work is God's idea. God created the garden, created a man, and told him to work in the garden. Work is God's idea. It is good. Work is a good thing. A good thing. And God has established patterns for our work. Look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the seventh day of the creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I said this last week, but God did not take a day of rest because he was tired. God is all-powerful, right? He, he used six days to create. He could have done it in six seconds or six milliseconds. So why did he use six days, six 24-hour periods, and then spend the seventh day resting? Why? He did that to establish for you and me a pattern, a rhythm for our lives. A Sabbath gives us a rhythm to live by. You work during the week, then you have a day of rest. A Sabbath reminds us that we are not all-powerful. The fact that we need rest reminds us that we are not all-powerful. Only God is, and we need Him. A Sabbath is a pause that refreshes. That used to be a the, the phrase for Coca-Cola, remember that? The pause that refreshes. Anybody remember that old advertising campaign? campaign? Coca-Cola, the pause that refreshes. The Sabbath is the pause that refreshes. A Sabbath helps to give you undistracted attention to your creator. And so God establishes a, a Sabbath, a day of rest, to help us to refocus and to rest and recharge so we can be more effective in our work. God set that up. And so we are called to work, to, to work the created order, to, to do good with the work of our hands. Now, I believe that, and I don't have time to do this real in-depth, but I believe work has, has three, basic, uh, three basic functions in all of our lives. Number one, work allows you to contribute to society, something that is good. And just kind of a quick word, if your job is not contributing to society, 
in a good way. In other words, if your, your job is harmful to society, then I would pray that God would give you another job. And I think he will. I mean, just pray about it. Say, God, I, this job not, is not doing good. I, I want a job where I can really contribute to society in a good way, be a blessing. So God, give, please give me another job and pray about it. See what God does. So a job helps us to contribute to society. Number two, a job helps us to provide for our family. Second Thessalonians, the Bible says, a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And the Bible says a man that does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. That's not wage, that's the Bible. So a job helps you provide for your family. And third, a job gives you resources to participate in, in kingdom work, what God's doing. Our, our Lottie Moon goal this year was $130,000. We hit $136,000 for international missions. Incredible o- over Christmas. I mean, it was just incredible to see what God did. Well, that money, uh, by and large, came from, your, came from your work, from you getting out there and working and earning it and having resources to participate in, in what God's doing in the kingdom. So God has established and endorsed work as good. Here's another purpose for our, for our existence. Why are we here? To form families, to work. Third, to enjoy creation. Enjoy creation. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. I know, I'm almost done. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so God surrounds Adam and Eve with these trees that are pleasant to look at and good. In other words, God gave them the Garden of Eden to enjoy, right? Not just to kind of keep them alive, but to enjoy. God gives us creation to enjoy. Look in 1 Timothy in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Great verse. Great verse. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God gives his people, and he really gives humanity by common grace, the creation to enjoy. And, and listen, we're called to enjoy it. We're called to enjoy life. I mean, you know, think about something like chocolate. Can I get a witness? I mean, I enjoy it. Other day, I, I met a friend for uh, uh, Ethiopian food, and man, it was good. And, and I just like eating, you know, different types of ethnic food. And you had the injera bread, and and I've always heard about Ethiopian coffee, how good. And so I did a little research, and, and I ordered Ethiopian coffee. And I'm glad I researched because it said in my research that you don't put cream in it. And so I didn't order cream because that would make me look silly, right? You just put sugar in it. And so we ordered the coffee, and they were back there for like ten minutes. They're doing some kind of pour over press type deal, I don't know what they were doing, they brought the coffee out, and it was rich and bold, and you put a little sugar in it, and, and it had this, wasn't bitter, it had this flavor to it, I'm thinking, man, this is good, I've always heard about Ethiopian coffee, this is good stuff, I, you know what I did, I enjoyed that cup of coffee, God gives it to us to enjoy, you know, the warmth of a fireplace, uh, the, the, the beauty of the mountains, the, the, the wonderful repetition of the waves crashing onto the shore right? That God gives us that to enjoy. We, we ought to, as, as, as people that believe in the Bible and believe that God created it all, we ought to, we ought to enjoy life. Amen? 
Some people think that Christianity is boring and God's trying to take away all of our fun. What? You're reading something different than what I read in the Bible. God gives us everything to enjoy, just like he gave him the Garden of Eden to enjoy. With boundaries. If you get outside those boundaries, you'll get destroyed. Just like what happened in the Garden of Eden. But God wants us to enjoy life. So he, he, he created us to enjoy the created order, to enjoy creation as a gift from his sovereign hand. By the way, not just Christians get to enjoy creation. There's a thing called common grace that God, the Bible says in the Sermon on the Mount, that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so even the unrighteous get in on it. They get to enjoy the grace of living in, in, in God's created order. And you hope that they're, they're recognizing that leads them to the creator. But that's an entirely different sermon. Here's the next reason that we were created. Why are we here? We're here to relate to our creator. Look in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now there's an interesting shift that takes place in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. Here's the shift. In chapter 1 and down through the first Three verses of chapter 2, the, the name for God is Elohim. Elohim. It's a common name for God. But starting in verse 4, there's a change. Look what it says there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and that the Lord God, not just God, but the Lord God, that word is Yahweh, Lord, Yahweh, Elohim. And if you keep reading through chapter 2, look how much the phrase Lord God is used. Look in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Verse, uh, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Do you see the repetition here? Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. Verse 18, the Lord God said it's not good for you to be alone. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. So you see, it's all the way through chapter 2 and, all, and beyond. And here's why that's interesting. The, the title Yahweh, translated here as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the covenant name of God. In other words, that's the personal name for God that, that, that his people relate to him by. That's the name he gave Moses at the burning bush, when Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? He gave them, I am that I am, Yahweh. And so this name, the Lord God, speaks of God's desire, listen, to relate to his creation. He wants us to know him in a personal way. Not just some distant deity, but he wants us to relate to him personally as our covenant God, Yahweh Elohim. Isn't that cool? God desires a covenant relationship with us. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. God spoke to Adam. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How do we know there's a relationship between God and Adam? Because God spoke to him. There's no speaking. There's no relationship. How does God relate to us? God speaks to us. Right? You ever thought about the Bible? Is God's, is God's voice to us? Is God speaking to us so we can relate to him? He spoke to Adam. God walked with Adam. Look in chapter 3, verse 8. This is cool. This is after they sinned, Adam and Eve. We'll talk about this next week. But it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, same phrase, among the trees of the garden. 
Lord God called the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So when God comes walking through the garden, they know it's God. They hear him and know it's God because they run and hide. So this, this teaches us that they knew what God walking through the garden sounded like. Before the fall, and I, I don't know what this all looked like or how this played out and how God manifests himself to Adam, but before the fall, God walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, what an awesome thought that is, right? Personal relationship. Walked with Adam. I mean, listen, Adam had the setup, okay? He had the setup. But we see here that, that God created Adam and he created Eve to relate to, to their creator, to have a personal relationship with the God that made them. And when sin entered the world and that relationship was broken, God already had a plan in place to bring people back into relationship with himself, including you and me. And the plan is summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that next week, all right? But here's the last reason that we've been created. Why are we here? Wait, why, why did God put me on the, is there any meaning? Is there any purpose? Why am I here? We created us to form families. He created us to work. He created us to enjoy creation. He created us to relate to our creator, to know him in a personal way through Christ. And then last, he created us to glorify his name. You might say it like this, that creation is the canvas on which God has painted his glorious story of redemption on. Or creation is the theater in, in which the, the, the story of God saving sinners is being played out on a cosmic scale. Turn to Isaiah 43, and we're going to be through. I'm going to be able to take one question tonight. So make it a good one. No pressure. Isaiah 43, verse 7. The Lord here speaks of everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory, whom I formed and made. So the Bible is clear. God forms us. He makes us for his glory. And I don't know exactly how everything is going to play out in the coming days in our nation and in, in the world, but I know the end of the book. I've read the end of the story, haven't you? And I know God wins. And when the dust settles on human history... We will stand back in awe and amazement at how glorious our God is. And we will see with laser-like clarity that God created everything and God created us as an ultimate display of His greatness and majesty and splendor in the universe. And so we're here for His glory. That's why we're here, to glorify God. And whether you, whether you follow Jesus and know God personally, or you reject Jesus and you're separated from God, God's going to get glory. Because the Bible says that one day, Philippians 2, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Listen, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, to the glory of God the Father. It's all about His glory. It's all about His greatness. That's why you're here. You're here to make God's, God's name great.